0: This episode of our Hole in the Air podcast considers the modern political and demographic evolution of both the city of Los Angeles and the greater Los Angeles region. This was the very first episode recorded of Hole in the Air, and joining us as our special guest that day in early May of 2019 was Vivek Sharma, a professor of political science who has taught at such renowned schools as Columbia University, Pomona College, Pitzer College, the University of Copenhagen, and Yale University. Our podcast team that day included Renee Nahum, Paul Michael Newman, Eric Sanchez, and she who remains silent, Susan O'Leary.
1: We have a a pretty interesting topic, I think, that's uh, certainly germane here where we're uh, recording this, which is in the city of Los Angeles. And, uh, Vivek, do you want to go at it? We've actually been sitting around talking for hours already. So (laughs) the rule of thumb here is that people should feel free to repeat
2: what they've said previously this morning as if they never said it. (laughs) Well, fair enough. Um, So what we are going to be talking about uh, here today is the transformation of Southern California, specifically with regard to demographics, uh, over the last few decades. One of the peculiar things about Southern California in its current iteration is that it's a town full of transplants. Um, This is not a city that has a lot of historical memory, In fact, it's uh, pretty common to meet people who think the drought is the normal state of affairs in this state. And I think this is a good opportunity to step back a little bit and talk about the really extraordinary changes that have occurred in this region uh, over the last quarter century. And to to start with the preview of the conclusion, uh, ironically, we actually have some good news here. the arc of the overall story, at least as far as uh, race relations are concerned in Southern California, is that it went, the region went from having amongst the worst race relations um, in the United States. Uh, the 1992 LA riots or uprising was the largest single incident of domestic violence since the Civil War. Um, And you fast forward 25 years, uh, 25 odd years, and we have a situation where things are remarkably good. And I think that requires explanation, it requires some context. And I think we can then end on some speculation as to what the future has in store for us, right, about uh, race relations and other great political stuff. So just getting started, right, just on the bare bones of the of the demographic transformation, a quarter century ago, and I think um, most people um, who have arrived in L.A. in the last decade or so don't seem to realize this, but this was fundamentally a white and black city for most of the 20th century, There obviously has been a very substantial and very important Latino population in Los Angeles from the very beginning, and we'll address that separately uh, a little bit down the line. But in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and into the 1990s, the two dominant demographic groups in Los Angeles were whites and African Americans. Whites were largely in the suburbs and in the northern uh, part of the city, particularly the valley, and obviously on the west side. And African-Americans were overwhelmingly concentrated in South LA. Um, And race relations in Los Angeles up until the 1990s, in some ways, resembled race relations nationwide. Um, I would say that they were probably a little worse in Los Angeles but not of a different species uh, from Chicago or from New York, uh, both places where you had large historical white working-class neighborhoods, uh, along with, obviously, very politically vibrant African-American communities. And one of the most remarkable things that's happened uh, in Southern California over the last quarter century, actually in California as a whole, is the disappearance of two very significant types of communities in Southern California. The first, and probably the most astonishing of of them all, is the disappearance of white working-class neighborhoods throughout Southern California. There are, obviously, and it's important to state, we're not saying that there aren't white-majority neighborhoods. Um, There are lots of white-majority neighborhoods, but they're affluent, overwhelmingly affluent. But the historical population that arrived in in California and particularly in Southern California over the course of the 20th century, which was overwhelmingly working class in nature, those communities no longer exist. And we'll we'll talk a little. We'll unpackage those those the, the data relating to that, but also why it matters. And then the second. Um, major transformation um, is the disappearance not just in Southern California, but actually in the entire state of California of African-American majority neighborhoods of all economic classes. Inglewood is basically the last black-majority area in California. And that's a, an astonishing transformation. I mean, one way to sort of preview just how amazing that transformation is is that the historical neighborhoods that had produced West Coast African-American culture, hip-hop and, you know, and film and uh, fashion and all of that, uh, those neighborhoods do not exist any longer. I mean, Compton is a Latino-majority area, as is Watts, right, and systematically going down the list. And so the question is, so what, right, and, um, and how did we, How did, first of all, how did this happen, and then second of all, well, then, so what? So the story about the demographic, oh, sorry, the story of the demographic transformation um, in some ways is exceptional by world historical standards. I mean, generally speaking, Massive demographic transformations in world history have always been accompanied by violence. Usually an armed group moving in to another area and either displacing or suppressing the indigenous population. That's how demographic change occurs, almost always. And in the United States over the last... Oh, really since 1965, right? Since the, the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965... Um, we have been dealing with something that's quite unique, which is very large inflows of populations um, from different cultures and different parts of the world, um, while there has been a lot of population movement internally within the United States. So there are two distinct stories here. One is the story of domestic migration, and that's extremely important as it regards the white population in Southern California as well as the African American population. And then the second and distinct question is one of international migration. I I think it's well known that about a quarter of the residents of the state of California are foreign born. I mean, that's a very, very large percentage and unusual by historical standards. So the first story Is really the end of the what happens at the end of the Cold War in Southern California economically, right? And as it relates to the demography of white of the white working classes, up until the nineteen eighties, up until the end of the Cold War, Los Angeles had been overwhelmingly economically oriented towards the defense industry, Um, aerospace in particular, but also Southern California was host to very substantial military bases. And one consequence of that is that Los Angeles, for most of the post-war period, was neither blue nor red. It was somewhere in between, whatever that would have meant in in those times. San Francisco was liberal. San Francisco was progressive. Southern California, less so. Right? Mm -hmm. There were progressives here. But the economic basis of life in Southern California was very heavily oriented towards what Eisenhower had called the military-industrial complex. And so um, the Southern California economy, I mean, what drew people to Southern California from other parts of the United States in the middle of the 20th century were manufacturing jobs in in, you know, in, in very particular kinds of sectors that tend to be conservative. and Military... Related but also automobiles, um, oil and uh, gas exploration as well as refining, so those were the main draws here, and the populations that came to Southern California were very largely conservative., I think that's a fair 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 way of putting it at the end of the 1980s, there was a general change in the American economy as we as we shifted from the Cold War to sort of a peacetime economy. And Southern California was very disproportionately affected by the end of the Cold War. So a lot of the manufacturing in aerospace left the state. It went to places like Texas and red states in the south. Um, The automobile manufacturing sector disappeared Almost entirely, I'm not aware of a major automotive manufacturing (laughs) base in LA anymore. And even the refineries um, are more limited uh, than, than they used to. So one consequence of that economic change was that the working class that obviously had worked in those industries left. As the jobs left, they left, right? So that's one part of the story. But the other part of the story is that while these economic changes were occurring, racial tensions in Los Angeles and Southern California pretty much rose to, I would say, a crescendo. Yeah, their tipping point, right? I would say up until, right, 95 or so, 96, around then. So we basically have this, like, 10-year period from the late 80s to sort of the mid-1990s in which there's a lot of turmoil in Southern California. A lot of people are leaving for for economic reasons. Uh, There's a very large migration from Mexico that's beginning to mature. It starts in the 70s and the 80s. Initially, it's largely... um, Mexican men, single men, coming without families, without, you know, and they're not really establishing communities. That really begins to change after amnesty in the late late 1980s and and, in the early 1990s. So you start to get real expanded Latino neighborhoods in Southern California. And furthermore, you get basically sort of a replacement overall of the working class. Right? So areas, the communities, particularly in the Valley that had been white working class and then those in in southern Los Angeles that had been black uh, and working class, they left and were replaced by a brand new type of working class. It's not simply that they, they came in and took the place of white working class people. They couldn't, right, because those jobs didn't exist. It's not like, you know, white people left the... The, the, the automotive industry and then Latinos just moved in. Actually, what they did was bring an entirely different way of living in Southern California, a different economic model, but also a different social model, right, of how you interact with with the areas around you, how you occupy public space, how you interact with the community. It's a very different type of of population. Effectively, The working class in Southern California, regardless of their actual ethnic identity, is Latino in culture. That that is the culture now of working class Los Angeles. And that is exceptionally new. I mean, this is not how it was historically. And so here we have a dilemma, which is to explain, on the one hand, massive demographic change, millions of people leaving the state every single year and those people being replaced by largely people from, from, from in this when we're talking about the, uh, the working class foreign born people There's a second major demographic transformation that happens around that time, too, although it starts really a little bit later. It starts sort of towards the end of the 90s and then really becomes assertive um, after the the turn of the millennium. And that is the large influx of of college-educated whites who work in the creative industries, for lack of you know a better term, but but really this sort of interesting merger of the entertainment world with high tech, and it brought with it real structural problems, which I hope we'll, we'll talk about, particularly on the west side of Los Angeles. I mean, when you start looking at neighborhoods like Venice, um, it, that's. It's almost unbelievable what happened in, in 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 those kinds of places. Now back to the racial narrative. Um, just to put down some some factual markers to guide the conversation. Um, so, uh, people in Los Angeles who were here in the '90s obviously know all of these dates, but it's worth keeping in mind. So, 1992 are the LA riots, and at the time of the LA riots, California. Was run by Pete Wilson. He was the governor of the state, and he represented something quite new in Republican politics in California. I mean, the California always had a nativist wing, um, particularly in Orange County. Um, It always had this kind of racial nativist Pat Buchanan-style politics. But they were rejected um, by the mainstream. I mean, Pat Buchanan, I remember when he was running in, what was it, 92, was constantly disavowed by the Republican establishment. And it's really important to remember, especially for people who are millennials listening to this, that until the end of the 1980s, there was no close association between any political party and attitudes towards immigration, the the, the the bill that led to amnesty was bipartisan. It, it was a Republican administration, actually, that pushed it. And the rhetoric of George H.W. Bush at the time was entirely the traditional one in this country of openness to immigrants and all of that. Pete Wilson, for strategic reasons um, in the early 90s, decided to run... On a nativist platform, that ultimately led, I think, to the annihilation of the Republican Party in the state. And we'll 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 talk a little bit more about that. But fundamentally, what Pete Wilson and the Republicans did was they bet that they could run on a few election election cycles by basically targeting what they called illegal immigrants, um, and they did it in, in, in at a time when Latinos were basically split between Republican and, and Democrats and Asians were too. Basically everyone, the, the political landscape was fluid, I would say, as, as regards to identity. And initially, um, Wilson did not start the campaign for Proposition 187, which, um, which if people don't know about this, you should definitely Google it. <laughs> Um, it's important in, in the history of California and it's actually really important in the history of the United States. It was a proposition pushed by um, elements of the Republican Party. Initially, it didn't get much traction, but it was essentially an attempt to penalize um Uh, undocumented workers in two ways and actually their children as well in two ways. I mean, one was to basically throw out, and I I think the number is about 300,000 children of undocumented workers out of the public school system. I mean, it's it's astonishing to believe that anyone thought that was good public policy. Um, And then the second was to, was to restrict access to medical care and, and services and it passed in the state, and it actually passed with with support. I mean, Asians and African-Americans were more evenly divided, but it narrowly passed among those two demographics and overwhelmingly among whites in, 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 in the state. And it worked out very well for Pete Wilson for two election cycles or maybe even three election cycles. I mean, the Republicans really ran on immigration on law and order this was also the time when the united states in general was (laughs) emphasizing very harsh measures uh, of with with regards to law enforcement in general and so this was a get tough approach and you know and there were a number of issues drugs was one of them immigration is another crime is a third There was a a whole movement to incarcerate uh, taggers, you know, for graffiti. (laughs) I mean, which, you know, and so this was this general idea that we were going to solve every problem under the sun by just locking up, I guess, half the population of the state in jail or something for some reason or the other. This peaked in any case, this sort of, I would say, almost manufactured, politically manufactured crisis, or I want to be cautious about that. Wilson did not invent the cleavages or the grievances. I mean, you heard, it was common to hear uh, white working class and white middle class um, people in the 1980s and early 90s talk about affirmative action as if there was some sort of manna from heaven, you know, you just sort of, you pushed a button and, you know, gold just flew down. Those. So yeah, I mean, it, it, literally that was the impression, you know. Yeah. I, I, I was even told uh, when I was 18 years old that I got into college because of the color of my skin. I, wow. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Um, wow. So it's not that Pete Wilson made that up, but but it would not have gotten traction in the state had Wilson not elevated it to being actually the Republican platform I mean it went from being something that was in the ether certainly uh, in certain circles in Orange County I'm sure uh, where I was never invited there was this was discussed um, but um, but it, it, it didn't it didn't dominate public discourse I, I think that's the right way of, of putting it. And so starting in the mid-90s, you first get a major realignment in reaction to Proposition 187 and this nativist um, move by the Republicans. You first really see it among Latinos. I mean, Latinos... The, the electoral data on voting patterns among Latinos is fascinating. I mean, basically up until the 1990... Basically up until 88... We're talking about slightly more Democratic voters than Republican, Mm -hmm. but not much, right? We're talking about a few percentage points, and that was true of largely of Asians, too. But starting in the mid-90s, you see a complete polarization. So the first thing that happens is Latinos bolt from the Republican Party more or less permanently, um, not more or less, permanently. Um, And you begin to see real shifts in party identification. I mean, from being very weak, weakly Democratic, to being overwhelmingly Democratic. I mean, in the 80 percentile range. And related to that, um, the battles over affirmative action, I I think the political strategy of people like Pete Wilson and the Republican Party at that time was to really try and mobilize Asians as the model minority behind this kind of anti-affirmative action, anti-illegal illegal immigration, you know, anti basically poor colored people uh, sets of policies and interestingly enough that didn't happen. So Asians then also swung sort of starting at the late 1990s overwhelmingly to the democratic side. And that was in spite of what Republicans argued was their economic interest. I mean, this is a population that is overwhelmingly uh, middle and upper middle class it's done extremely well they should love low taxes and low crime and you know lots of policing and all of those things but they didn't because they could They weren't stupid. I mean, they could see the writing on the wall. The writing on the wall was, uh, first they're going to go after Latinos, then they're going to go after blacks, and then they're going to come after us. And so you basically get a generational shift, more or less permanent, among Asian Americans. In fact, uh, I believe the party identification data in the state of California is now 78% of Asians identify as Democratic. And it's kind of single issue. I mean, or at least how Asians got to become democratic was almost entirely about identity politics. It was a reaction against white identity politics, actually. And then you get the, 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 the third major demographic group, which is African Americans, who had obviously been a major constituency of the Democratic Party historically. But the early 90s revealed real problems. Um, in interminority relations, I mean, to put it mildly. I mean, one of the, the things about 1992 was that it revealed that the, I mean, much of the violence of the L.A. riots ended up being directed towards Korean-owned businesses. And that was traumatic for this place for lots of reasons, one of which was uh, having two, two disadvantaged minorities go at it. it just seems, yeah... Problematic, um, And so one of the responses of the Asian community um, in the early 1990s to the L.A. riots was to really sort of sit down and think about whether they really were a part of this community. Do they have a real stake in it? Do they want to have representation? Do they want to have a say in how this place runs? And they decided, yes, I mean, that they were going to s- stick it out and you began to get all kinds of initiatives between African- American community um, organizations and Asian American uh, community organizations. And luckily, and this is where you know the the structure of the Democratic Party at the early 19 of the early 1990s was fortuitous, I think for the state, the Democratic Party, the structure of the Democratic Party allowed for this kind of more relaxed internal discussions, I think. It wasn't across partisan lines. All of these were conversations that were occurring within a large tent, but nonetheless a tent. And I think that's really characteristic of California politics generally right now. I mean, I don't get a sense, I and mean, we were talking about this earlier, but uh, I don't get a sense that thing Temperature is not high in this state about political issues internally. I mean, it is with regards to the federal government and what the Trump administration is doing. But by and large, locally, it all seems like an internal democratic conversation about just about everything. Um, And I, I really think that the roots of that go back to how the Democratic Party was able to provide a very specific space in which different groups were able to come and have conversations about what kind of community are we going to have, what, what kind of relationship are the different groups going to have. And it was timely, because um, as we were originally talking, I mean, as we were talking about initially, this was coinciding with the massive influx of Latinos. And the this new Latino community that was forming in the 1990s in Southern California was obviously moving into areas inhabited by other minority groups. So because one of the things we have to talk about in in terms of race relations in Southern California is the extremely interesting combinations you now get in Los Angeles. When you look at a neighborhood like Lincoln Heights, well, Lincoln Heights is a Chinese and Latino neighborhood. Now that's, you know, we're now beginning to talk about race relations in Southern California without reference to a dominant white c- culture. And that's new. I mean, that wouldn't have made any sense historically. I mean, historically, it made sense to talk about whites and everybody else, sort of. Right? I mean, it was, it was it was probably a bit too broad-brushed. But nonetheless, I mean, we're now dealing with interactions in Southern California where where you have Latino and African-American neighborhoods. And things are fine. I mean, it's surprising, and in fact, we should probably talk about why is it fine, because it probably shouldn't be.
1: I would yeah. even say, just by way of example, because you mentioned Lincoln Heights, I remember conversations about Chinese and Chinese-Vietnamese right. you, you end up uh, having this uh, endlessly shifting, intriguing kind of set of, uh, of, of different people coming together and interfacing and... Much of the time, certainly, I say most of the time, doing so in a productive and, and intriguing way.
2: I, I agree. I mean the I mean the fusion food alone benefits. I mean are incredible. I mean Korean tacos are pretty damn good. I like <laughs> Korean tacos. Right? Uh,
0: there, there's also an interesting dynamic in the city of Glendale, <laughs> which was predominantly white for yeah. a very long time, very conservative. In fact, a very scary place. When I was growing up in mm. the 60s, we were told, don't go there after sundown, you know, if you were Jewish. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Um, and now it's uh, – then it became predominantly Armenian. Little Armenia. And now it's Armenian and Latino. Mm. Latino. And um, there are some skirmishes. You know, they've had some issues in the high schools. Mm. But it seems nothing big. People seem to settle down.
1: There, there was a, there was a time, uh, just talking about Glendale for a moment. Uh, well, Central Avenue mm. in Los Angeles mm. was, in many ways, the, the kind of the Harlem Renaissance mm. uh, West, if you yeah. will. Even though different areas of different sections of Central Avenue, at different times, were home uh, to a lot of the great cultural places. And during the war, uh, when the uh, military-industrial mm. complex th- through various plants was out in operation 24 hours. Mm. It was non-stop, uh, building planes, building other, other uh, t- I'm sure tanks, other things for the military. And people in their off hours would go to Central Avenue and would, mm. uh, at any hour, there were places open you'd see the great jazz musicians of, of our time uh, playing, of their time playing and, and all kinds of other things happening. Um, in Glendale, some of the uh, famous artists, musicians, would come there to play, but they would be escorted out to the boundaries, uh, Hmm. by what, uh, certain hour because they were not allowed in. So they might perform, get paid hopefully. Um, but Levi, I do want to mention one thing in passing, which is you talked about the, uh, in a sense, the, the fortuitous presence of the democratic Hmm. party in terms of being a space where Hmm. people could have these discussions. Um, I know through my years in politics uh, that there also were uh, efforts maybe most notably what could be called the Tom Bradley machine was actually in many ways also called back then the Berman Waxman, Berman D'Agostino bad the political uh, consultants and elected officials who essentially partly for the sake of broadening their presence would have All the communities purposefully uh, engaged uh, and would have uh, people from those communities uh, be candidates, be elected, be supported by the other people who they had uh, as part of their uh, network, if you will. And so you did have, I would say not just as a matter of expedience, but a matter of of principle. You had people who earnestly, I think in most, if not all cases, wanted to see changes made. Mm Um, many of those people, by the way, came out of uh, UCLA and, and McGovern, students yeah. for, for electing McGovern. So there was an anti-war <laughs> yeah. uh, nice. spirit, a sense that, that there was a great need for change. And that was also, uh, at the same time, a sense of, of what the civil rights movement was yeah. about. So you, you did have a, uh, a lot of people, who's, many of them are still around, some in the elected office, Uh, devoted to trying to make this change. It doesn't mean that there were always people who were absent um, uh, agenda or a cliquish sensibility sometimes, but there was really a a, a very significant embracing of, of, uh, I think, all the communities and also a sense that politically... You wanted to be as, uh, not as diligent, but as adept as possible at identifying and and, uh, voters, potential voters, and generating votes. So in that sense, I know I'm talking mostly in terms of politics per se, but I think there was a real sense that you wanted to have communities uh, recognized and also engaged, and then also creating those kinds of uh,
2: interactions, which could be to everyone's benefit. And see, I think I think that's extremely important. I mean, the the you know, especially when you think about both Latinos and but, and also Asian communities, right? So, so I mean, my sense about the political involvement of the various Asian communities in Southern California prior to the LA riots was really one of indifference. I mean i I think my sense is that the Korean community viewed itself as being separate um, from the rest of what was happening in Los Angeles, and that they were primarily concerned about preserving something from Korea in this new land and I think that's true of a lot of different immigrant groups that first arrive here, but I think what what you know going back to the specific mechanism that the the that the de- the structure of the democratic party provided to hash out these kinds of issues what it did was it was highly effective at bringing in groups that had excluded themselves from political participation to bring them in now the Republicans only managed to do that with one group in one tiny place. They did that with the Vietnamese community in Orange County, and Donald Trump has taken care of that uh, by, by deporting <laughs> Vietnamese yeah. refugees. Um, but that was it. That was the full extent of the Vietnamese uh, the, of the Republican outreach, and that was based on anti-communism, which need, needless to say was completely irrelevant by the 1990s. So they had nothing to go with. We had. Nativism, and that was it, whereas the Democratic Party was really effective at bringing in representation and, and, and pretty quickly of different groups at different levels of, of of government, including the congressional delegations. I mean the Los Angeles Congressional delegation has to be amongst the most fascinating group of people an elective office anywhere at any time. I mean, just look at that group. I mean, it's amazing. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, it was the capacity of the system to look at or at least the democratic side of the ledger, to look at these new groups coming in and to not ask the question, well, how do we you know, keep them marginalized, but how do we get them as quickly as possible involved in the mainstream of the society and, and the politics of the society? And in that sense, I mean, it was a remarkable achievement. I mean, I cannot think of any precedent... I mean, when you think about the urban machine, political machines in the 19th century in Boston or New York, I mean, the principal mechanism by which the Irish and Catholics and Jews were integrated into the political framework was really through out and out corruption. These were party machines that were designed to provide jobs in exchange for votes. It was that simple. And the logic of the situation was also very simple, which is that there are all these wasps over here, and, yeah, they're not going to give you a job. So you have to go through the party machine. But L.A. managed to... And, and then, eventually, that's how the Catholics get integrated. In Boston, in fact, they take over the the city machinery. But out here, actually, that's not what happened. I mean, what ha- I mean. Some of it happened that way, right? I mean, we do have corruption scandals in Los Angeles, as we do uh, in the rest of the country. But I mean, largely, this was a proactive effort by the political establishment on one side of of the aisle to ensure that there wouldn't be populations of alienated, um, yeah, alienated immigrants in particular uh, living in the city with with no with no political voice. But I think the, the the other interesting thing that happened was the transformation in how Latinos have dealt with Los Angeles, right, as, as a city. I mean, the the most interesting part of the the la- I think that of the demographic changes in the last thirty years is the creation of something quite. New and quite distinct, and that is a Latino Southern California culture, with very specific institutions, very specific types of of interactions, and very different usages of public space. And I think, in that sense, we're all slightly you know Latino now, right? I mean, we, we all eat tacos. We all go to parks. You know, I some of the most extraordinary um, events that I've witnessed in Los Angeles are just, you know, walking down downtown L.A. streets because there's actually life on the streets now. <laughs> there, are, there are actually people yeah. doing things. I mean, they're actually selling stuff. And in that sense, L.A., you know, in some ways is more like every other city on the planet. <laughs> In a way that it hadn't been uh, for for most. Of, and I, I do think yeah. that's
1: something that a lot of people rejoice in, and yeah. especially I think the uh, let's just say younger generations find that appealing. I will say that occasionally I hear something, somebody or other say something which I I think is me- is meant to be disparaging, and I find dispiriting. Which is when they say this or that specific neighborhood. Is third world yeah. and it 's said as an insult, uh, yeah. I think, and it 's uh, a vestige of sorts of the kind of of uh, bitter regret and tension mm-hmm. that happens when people some people experience change uh, and I, I want to note that um, you know, also in terms of some of the the, the, uh, the changes you mentioned. Over the course of time in LA, one of the issues that was close to being a flashpoint issue, if it wasn't, was busing. Yeah, oh, that's right. And yeah. that's certainly, you know, I, I don't want to, su- I would not want to suggest that everyone in party, one party was for yeah. busing and everyone in the other party was against. Uh, it, it struck certain as a political issue. It was more intense in, let's say, the San Fernando Valley, I believe, mm. than, let's say, most other areas. Uh, in terms of people uh, wanting yeah, not right. to have busing, and it was something that really uh, did cause a lot of strife uh, in terms of people's emotional sense of, of place and, and community. But I do think uh, you know we've we've moved very far beyond that in a lot of ways. Though, as with many cities, there are issues in terms of. Who is served by the public school yeah. system, and it's not like those issues and challenges
2: and opportunities have disappeared. Yeah, and I and I think there's, I mean, so I mean, when we view Los Angeles, obviously from the perspective um, of the identities of the people sitting around this table, for us, this has all been wonderful. It's a, something to celebrate and to be to be impressed by almost. Um, but there's a there's a second part to this that I think is, it is important that we acknowledge um, and we address in, in in some way, and that is that you know in some level the history of Los Angeles is one of profound you know demographic transformation, but also of loss and the problem that we often have, because we're, we are the primary beneficiaries of the changes that have occurred over the last generation, is that we often have a hard time acknowledging that, the, that worlds disappeared here that the landscape that had created the Reagan revolution was a very specific vision of a very specific kind of society. Now, it was very exclusionary, but it was nonetheless a, you know, if you, the, the great German historian, Leopold von Ranke said, you know, in the eyes of God, um, all societies stand justified. Um He said it in the 19th century. I don't know if he would mean it now uh, after Donald Trump. No, I'm just kidding. Or or the Holocaust and all of that, right? I mean, so, you know, those caveats aside, um, I still think that it's a call for empathy, that you you cannot understand something that you don't empathize with. And the thing about uh, when I encounter and I have conversations with the remnants of the white working class um, I, and I, I'm not hesitant to talk to people um, I, I'm almost curious um, my the, the my my sense with them is this overwhelming sense of sadness um, that a world and and of surrender because the world that they lost is gone and it's never coming back and you know just to put this you know, put this in, 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 or at least hopefully elicit some empathy for that. I mean, I am the grandson of refugees. I mean, my uh, grandparents were expelled um, from Lahore in 1947, along with millions of other Hindus and Sikhs who moved to what is now India. And then, and then of course, there was a movement the other way. And for most of my life, um, I heard from my grandmother in particular these woeful reminiscences of what life had been like in lahore and you know and it came down to the most precious items even at the end of her life was the were were the furniture that they somehow managed to drag from lahore to delhi you know and it it was still there in fact i i I had asked that i'd be Given that, and well, I, um, I have not received listen, it yet? If you're <laughs> listening, oh, that's too late for that oh. one. But um, but but so I I because the identity, right? Yeah, and and I and 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 I and I want to make sure that we don't obliterate that past either, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. I mean that we acknowledge that you know that that for most of the 20th century. Los Angeles was paradise for a very particular demographic. I mean, if you were from Oklahoma in the 1930s, there was no better place on earth than Southern California. I mean,
1: are, you, are you, is that is that really the fairest description or the most complete description? I mean, those of us who grew up either, you know, thinking about uh, or reading or viewing Grapes of Wrath yeah. and other uh, oh. historical <laughs> renderings I mean yes yeah, I you had the, you, the yeah. marketing of yeah. Southern California yeah. as the, uh, the, the, the heaven on yeah. earth yeah. but then you had sometimes t- Real. the reality I think what I understand to be the reality of how people were exploited uh, even to the point that probably saying murderously exploited is is, is not a bad way of putting it um that said, yeah. um you know, when we think of the of Los Angeles and California, I think due diligence and shared humanity means we think of the differences which are severe. And we yeah. the you know some of the things that come to my mind are Sleepy Lagoon and Zoot yeah. um, and the shooting of Ruben yeah. Salazar shooting yeah. death and and unrest and, and lynchings yeah. and uh, the internment of Japanese yes. Americans in concentration camps. So the, the horrors are yeah. there. I think, for me, the, the, yeah. the wonderful uh, experiencing of what you're talking about is the hope that not only we have here in Southern California, California as a, as a whole, but really... What should be inspired in all kinds of people anywhere is is the premise that we can uh, yeah. move beyond so much of that uh, at times wretched yeah. uh, reality, and we can do it frankly just by being neighborly and friendly <laughs> and tolerant understanding it's not the worst. Uh, message on Earth. Anyway, so I, I did want to, yeah. The, as much as I'm sure many people from Oklahoma I, have adored being there, <laughs> yeah. I suspect. But I think one there was two. there
0: was marketing involved with the California yeah, yeah, dream. Yeah, I, I right. mean, you know, it was the Beach Boys. Orages. It was yeah. Or it was the, or you, or know, the jobs, you know California girls picking, and yeah. you know oranges. driving fast cars. Yeah. And, yeah pasadena whatever and that's
2: the (laughs) california california culture that you were talking about back then and how it's changed now right yeah i mean so i mean i mean if you i mean one of the things that i did in preparation you know for this podcast was i went and looked at old maps of la and just went back like all the way and there was this one map um from the 1890s that just my jaw dropped because it was a pa- it was a panoramic sketch it wasn't an actual map I'm oh, sorry it was a panoramic sketch of LA and and it was looking down from where you know Dodger Stadium is now down to to the to the coast and it was all green and citrus it was a garden city And I I just remember thinking, wow, I mean, that's just impossible to believe. I mean, just miles and miles and miles of greenery. And so what it's being sold to, the the myth of California that's being sold is, you know, healthy air and fresh fruits. I mean, who in Oklahoma was eating oranges in the 19th century? (laughs) Probably nobody. And and in that sense, this sort of image of a bucolic world for white working class people, of course, who were the f- people who really settled, especially the places like the San Gabriel Valley, right? I mean, religious communities just picking up all of them and just moving uh, out here. But I, I agree that see the I think the 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 the, the history of racial violence in Southern California absolutely must not be pushed to the side. I mean, it has to be front and center because it's just true. And it goes back literally to the beginning. I mean, I I think the first racial incident... That I'm aware of occurred within the first month of the founding of the city of Los of the pueblo of Los Angeles. I mean, because about a third of them were of African descent, and there was just trouble. And then, of course, interacting with the indigenous population of the region. So, race is definitely it's it's the one theme that's almost impossible to get away from in the United States in general, let alone here. But what I think is optimistic, and I think what really needs to be emphasized, I think are two things. I mean, one is that pluralism in urban settings is the norm. Europe... In the medieval and early modern period is very historically unusual. I mean, that basically everybody's the same. I mean, everybody speaks the same language, everybody has the same religion, and everybody looks the same. And in Western Europe, there basically were were no significant minorities of any kind, including Jews, who were mostly in Eastern Europe. So the Western world between, you know, in the medieval period and the early modern period was very strange because it was just homogenous. It's not normal. But normally, almost all urban centers that have ever existed historically have been extremely pluralistic. Um, And in fact, that that is probably the defining characteristic of it, um, which is that you have lots of people living in organized communities in proximity to one another. And I think it's important to emphasize that in every single one of these historical instances, you're going to have friction between the groups. It is impossible that there not be, because things are constantly changing. And furthermore, and this is something, you know, probably a topic for another podcast, but that community matters. It matters for your identity, but it also matters for your livelihood, for your existence. These communities are not abstractions. They're not simply things that are comfortable because you like the food or the smells. These are networks of of institutions that allow you to function in the society. In fact, they give meaning to your existence in the society. So those communities are real. They're important. And the traditional liberal notion that society is simply comprised of individuals is not a very accurate description i mean it's a nice aspiration but it's not an accurate description so in a sense los angeles is becoming beautifully typical of the urban of the urban pattern of eurasia going back i don't know how long over thousands of years and so the key here is not that pluralism leads to conflict there will be tension, there will be friction. there will be as people are moving uh, you know to different neighborhoods, people are moving out. there's always going to be that friction. I mean, there's friction in a marriage, there's friction in a the family. there's no getting away from that. Try moving in with somebody right Oh yeah, <laughs> or try moving out because yeah. right? I'm still trying oh, I have said that. Sorry. Um, so um, but the, the the key point for Los Angeles is that we are now a world city in the normal sense of the term, which we weren't before. Beforehand, California or Los Angeles was a white city with minority communities that had to be kept down with actual force and violence. And and a staggering amount of resources, public resources, were deployed to maintain that hierarchy, right? This was a daily thing. I mean, if you were an African-American male, you woke up in the morning and I'm sure the first thing you did after you brush your teeth was like, okay, well, who am I going to run into today, you know? But that structure is now gone. What we have in its place is a much more fluid power structure. We have a much more dynamic um intercommunal relations and you're also now beginning to see which i I, i'm certain is going to become a much more solid trend a distinctive los angeles culture that is becoming much more distinct from the rest of the united states than it had been historically in some ways southern california historically could have been viewed as the quintessence of sort of white suburban America. We're no longer that. And in its place, we have something quite different and new. And, and I think normal, which would then imply stable, I think.
1: So I have a, a few quick comments, uh, thoughts, I just want to toss out there. These may be actually for later podcasts, who knows? Um, one is, we talked briefly about or you know, we talked for a little while about the sense of loss that yeah. some have had. Um, I was reminded of something that happened. Uh, I think maybe it was last year. Uh, Councilmember Mitchell Farrell spearheaded here in Los Angeles uh, mm-hmm. the changing of the name of Columbus Day, Columbus Day. to Indigenous yeah. Indigenous People's Day and. There there was a lot of dialogue that that office yeah. had throughout the city with anyone who was, bit, uh, was interested, but also, among others, specifically the Italian-American mm-hmm. community, which has had a very vital presence yeah. here in Los Angeles. And there were some who were not so happy. There were some who were content with the idea that instead of separate day, I forget if it's called italian Americans Day, something along those lines, uh, has been instituted. Uh, but... It speaks to change. Yeah, um, that that there was the willingness to think more holistically, if you will, about the nature of the city and all of the people and those who might take affront at what uh, we now. Basically, can say is the common consensus of historians that which is that Christopher Columbus was no angel, um, and yet that transition didn't discover that, America. That, that, that transition did happen. Uh, you know, we can look at, at the tumult which they were aware of, of course, in in that council office. The tumult over uh, the statues of Confederate leaders, yeah. and that has been not as. Uh, peacefully handled, or maybe it hasn't in some places, but there's been more and more uh, kinds of uh, extreme, uh, and extremist action over that. Here in Los Angeles, we've managed those kinds of changes, oftentimes with a real sense of willingness to, to accept that the future does involve change. L.A. specifically, but also California, Um, But L.A. is very much a place that's a newer city anyway. And to some extent, even while old forces might want to govern it according to their understandings as to what culture should be and power should be, um, we also have a fair share of, of visionary input, and you can even talk about a at Disney. Yeah, um, right. For better and worse, yeah. you can talk about the, the idea that we can create it, not just create, but recreate the landscape, the map, the technological things that bind us together. So we lose some things in the process. We gain other yeah. things, maybe. Uh, the Internet also is, is coming along and changing all kinds of understandings yeah. of community. And I would just say that um, we try... I think one can say to 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 uh, to figure these things out, so that obviously one of the big issues in Los Angeles, especially, but across the country, has been policing yeah. and uh, related issues of uh, incarceration, brutality. Uh, but here in LA, since the days I, I think I mentioned Mayor Bradley, but those those were also the days of Daryl Gates, the That's chief true. of police, and a lot of changes have uh, happened. Uh, I, I won't go into the entire history, but the Christopher Commission, which came along after what happened, uh, that's right. the, the unrest or riots or whatever, yeah. whatever we call it, insurrection. Um, Newly elected
2: we have, Democratic sheriff. We, <laughs> that's, that's another story, but,
1: but we we have we,
2: we, we do have uh,
1: a real commitment to community policing. I say real. I want to say a systemic commitment. I don't want to say everyone. Every officer, every person in every community agrees about how that should be handled or if it's to be handled authentically and with integrity. But there's a significant shift in how uh, power relations are handled, how the understandings of people who are not white uh, might be affected if they are treated in a harsh or unjust unjust way. And so I think that that, these are all – I'm not trying to be categorically uh, Pollyanna-ish about this, but these are all things that really speak well for how a large city, a huge place, a, a, a crucial economic engine yeah. for this world and this, certainly this country, how all these things can move forward in a way that actually does allow for people to uh, to more and more grow comfortable with where they live.
2: And I, and I think that... The- that the the key lesson insofar as l a has something to teach uh, the rest of the country is that that demographic change is not it, it is not destiny. The outcome of it can 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 vary. I mean, you can end up in a very bad place if it is not managed properly. You need appropriate political and and social institutions. To manage it, there was real wisdom in how Los Angeles responded. I mean, not necessarily the government, not necessarily the state, not indi- necessarily individual politicians, but the way so, in which the various communities responded to the Los Angeles riots was extremely healthy. And it wasn't clear, I think, at the time that it would be I mean it sounded like common sense, you know, maybe we should talk. <laughs> it seemed reasonable that you know getting to know your neighbors is a good idea, but it didn't seem that we were actually going to move anywhere beyond that um There's one last comment i'd I'd, I'd like to make, and you know this is a bit of an ominous um, point, but it does strike me as being important to note that the the equilibrium that we now have in in California, I think, as, as as a whole, but really here in this region, with regards to the attitudes towards diversity and multiculturalism and pluralism and, and, all, and all of those those things. There there was not an internal argument in California in which the opponents of those things were Change their minds. There was never a moment at which, at which, former members of the Ku Klux Klan and various white supremacist groups had an aha moment. Oh, this is really awful. Or why shouldn't I enjoy tacos <laughs> or something like that? They left the state, and and that's. Important to remember because what it does is it provides us with a safety valve. I mean, the, the the troubling question, at least for me, is what if California really were a country, and what if you did not have outward migration of of particular demographics? What then would have happened? Because that's closer to the current situation in a, in a place like London or in. In, in in France, right? Where, yes, you can move right around Europe, but the linguistic barriers are such that it's not that simple. I mean, whereas here, you really can have millions and millions of people flowing in and out without there being this kind of traumatic rupture that would normally happen uh, elsewhere. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that what didn't happen is a consensus between between all of the demographics that were here in the late 1980s. That at some level a lot of these problems got resolved by outward migration of, of constituencies that were opposed to it and the in, influx of immigrants Who were then just socialized Into what we had existing So uh, somebody from Central America Moving into Lincoln Heights Isn't going to bat an eye about having Asian neighbors It's a non-issue
1: In any case But I, but it's also important to, to Be clear, at least from my perspective That what you then need More than ever in a way Is the kind of political activism And legal and Efforts mm. that allow people rights to vote, yes. to live in any community where they can at least afford to live, yeah. um, to get on a bus and sit anywhere, all the things that have been achieved, to to, to have a right to, uh, to, to send their kids to yes. a decent school. Um, and these are, are things that even if to some extent they've been resolved uh, legally, th- there are still ongoing mm. political struggles. Uh, and And everything is always at stake, and I yeah. think you know, certainly part of what needs to be done happens because people are comfortable with their neighbors, no matter yes. let 's say what their color skin yeah. or their language skills and whatever set of, skill, of languages they may speak um, but that it 's also uh, it 's also really through serious focus on protecting. People's humanity, yeah. but that also means their rights to yes. live and to live and to with some degree of hope and faith that where they live is not going to betray them uh, because of
2: again what they might look like. See, I, I, I think that's an outstanding point. I mean, I think, I think, I, I think it's extremely important to emphasize that what changed at some level, in the most basic sense, in Southern California, is that. People who were not white before a certain date did not have a stake in the society in the way that they do now. And so part of the process of inclusion is the acknowledgement of the legitimacy of the claims that these different groups are making. And it just wasn't there before. Because before, it was this binary choice. I mean, either it's this white suburban vision, You know, with the swimming pool and the bikinis and all of that, or it was the ghetto. Now I think what we have is, first of all, a more dynamic sense of what is normal. I mean, I mean, not everybody needs to go live in the suburbs with a swimming pool and you know fruit trees, Um, but also the sense that you know it only works if the legitimate. Claims right of different groups are actually taken into account, and that that was fundamental, I would say here. So on that you know, note, I'd
1: like to thank you so very much, Dr. Vivek Sharma. Uh, also joining us are Eric Sanchez, Renee Nahum, our silent but uh, magnificent uh, co-producer Susan O'Leary here. In. And this has been the first episode of a podcast that may or may not. Be known as uh, I got to look this up. Hole in hole the air, or just hole in the air. I don't know. Hole in or the we'll air. call it something else. <laughs> um, but thank you, any listeners out there, and uh, we will probably tag on to this some contact info so you can let us know what you thought, what you think, and what you may in the future think. Uh, so thank you again, and thanks to our wonderful guests. All
2: right, well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this podcast. You can share a comment, question, or idea by emailing us at SLAnnunciator at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can find more of our podcasts at slenunciator.com. Wherever you may be, have a lovely day.